Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Before Gary comes up to preach, we're going to have our Bible reading now. It comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul is writing to uh, a church that he loves, as you'll pick up from these verses. Thessalonians chapter 2, reading from verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell this, uh, to tell you His gospel in the face of strong opposition. For we, are, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we, are never, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our witness, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we, are, we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom of glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as, as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's church in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Thanks, Gary. Great to be with you. Really do appreciate uh, Ross and Ben asking me to be here. And this morning, I'm going to attempt to do three things at once, which is quite an ask for most men, and I'm, and I'm no exception, but I'm going to give it a go. In the first place, I want to speak to Ben. Uh, it's a delight for me to do that, Ben, as you've heard. He's a former student, he's a friend, he's a colleague. But this is an important day for him that some of us thought we may never actually see. 
But even though today's a special day for Ben, for lots of us, it's actually just a regular Sunday. You've come here as usual. Uh, we need to be reminded of the, of the gospel of the Lord Jesus to be set up to keep going with him for another week. And I want to point some things out from this part of the Bible for you too. And there are also some of us who are here this morning just to cheer Ben on that maybe you don't normally come to church or you really just started to check out Christianity. And I really don't want this to be a terrible experience for you. So I'll do my best to say something helpful from this part of the Bible for you as well. Now, if all that's going to happen, we really will need God's help. So let's ask God to help us now. Why don't you pray with me? Loving Father, thank you that you are the God who speaks to us. Thank you that you have shown us yourself in the Lord Jesus and in your word. So we pray that wherever we're at in our spiritual journey, however we're feeling this morning, that you might speak to us through your word, that we might see Jesus clearly, know what it means to live for him, and be equipped to do just that. Help us, we pray. We ask because of Jesus. Amen. Now, the part of the Bible we've just read is all about being the real deal. It's particularly appropriate for us to look at this this morning because what we're doing here today, what will happen when I'm finished as we ordain Ben, is basically that we're saying after a long and arduous process, when it comes to being a church leader, a pastor, Ben Mansfield is the real deal. Now, in our group of churches, in the Presbyterian Church, we don't say that quickly. In fact, we don't really say anything quickly. To get to this point, it has been a long road. Ben has had to do all kinds of things, like learning Hebrew, having to explain the Greek text of the book of Romans, as well as proving himself here at Southside over many years proving that he's a reliable Bible teacher, that he loves people, that he's capable of leading in a way that's wise and sensible and gospel-shaped. And he's proved that to us over a, a long stretch. So today, we've come together to give him our kind of corporate stamp of, stamp of approval to say that Ben is the real date. Now, right from the start of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century, this has been quite an issue. In fact, much of the New Testament is taken up with issues around authenticity and trustworthiness. Even people like the Apostle Paul came under serious criticism. People asked big questions. Was Paul the real deal? And that's what was going on when he wrote this part of the Bible, the, the one we've just read. The letter that this is taken from, 1 Thessalonians, was written to a church in northern Greece, which Paul himself had planted in the years after Jesus' resurrection. Paul had a really close relationship with them, but as he went off and traveled around the Mediterranean planting other churches, word got back to him that his friends in Thessalonica were being put under pressure to distance themselves from Paul. Some people in the city of Thessalonica didn't like Paul because they just thought he was a troublemaker. And they didn't want anyone or anything to jeopardize their privileged position, their comfortable life in the Roman Empire. 
For others in the city who were Jewish, they detested both Jesus Christ and Paul who kept banging on about Jesus. His Jewish background meant they thought he was a traitor. So they were making life hard for the church, telling them you'd get on much better in this community if you would just ditch Paul. So Paul writes to ask them to stick with him. Why? Because Paul says, because you know I'm the real deal. Now, I'm sure Paul would have preferred not to have to write like this. He would much rather have been talking about Jesus than defending himself, but I'm actually pretty glad he had to because in doing so, he lays out for us what it looks like to be the, the real article as followers of the Lord Jesus. Now, I pray that this morning this will be a challenge to Ben as he seeks to be that for the rest of his life. I pray that it will be useful to all of us who are trying to follow Jesus as we see what, what it actually looks like. And I think it's also helpful for people who are just checking out Christianity because you see up front what Jesus is calling all of us to. Now, in this part of the chapter, Paul basically talks about three things, his inner motives in the first seven verses, his methods, and then his expectations. But as he does so, he basically gives us like three components of being authentic, the, the real deal. And I just want to step you through them. Now, let me say up front, don't panic. The first one will take me much longer than numbers two and three, okay? So lunch is not in jeopardy. You know, just stick with me. Uh, the first one's in the first uh, six and a bit verses. Paul says, live before an audience of one. You know, brothers and sisters, he says that that our visit to you was not without results. Now, it's actually really hard to translate that little phrase without results. Paul's probably saying a bit more than the fact that his visit to Thessalonica hadn't been a complete waste of time. The word really means insincere. Paul says that his arrival, his coming to Thessalonica, hadn't been showy. In the first century, some traveling philosophers who regularly worked the circuit around the Mediterranean insisted that if they were going to come, there needed to be some prearranged hype. One such traveling speaker, a man called Dio Chrysostom, for example, modestly describes his staged arrival to the next stop on his empire tour like this. I was escorted with much enthusiasm and honor, the recipients being so grateful for my presence and begging me to address and advise them and flocking about my door from early in the morning. It wasn't like that for Paul. He came. He spoke about Jesus. There was no fuss. In fact, he'd just been run out of the neighboring city of Philippi for doing it, and he knew that his reception in Thessalonica wasn't going to be any better. Verse 2, we'd previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel, the message of Jesus, in spite of strong opposition. Paul didn't swagger into town. Instead, he came quietly, carrying the stench of suffering on his clothes. And even though he wasn't greeted with trumpets and drums, and lots of people weren't pleased to see him, he just quietly and compellingly spoke about what God has done and is doing and will do in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, I dare to tell you the gospel. 
He explains the reason for this in verses 3 to 4. He says, For the appeal we make doesn't spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And then this, which is the core of this whole chapter. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. Paul's living before an audience of one. His only real concern is to please God, and that shapes everything he does. Paul's ministry doesn't flow from dodgy motives. It's not designed to reel in suckers. His ministry has integrity. And according to Paul, it's been approved by God. It bears the stamp of God's approval, tested and genuine by God Himself. That's all that matters to Paul, and that's what makes him the real deal. I don't know about you, but I find the prospect of being searched, tested by God, I think that's a pretty scary one. If God sees everything, I know He's going to see a whole pile of stuff that I would really prefer that no one else, let alone God, the God of all purity and beauty, has to look at. And we all know that our motives are never entirely pure. Our actions are never completely selfless. But Paul's actually talking about another kind of examination here, one in which God looks at us and our lives and our ministry in church and says, are they basically living to please me or not? Yes or no? See, this isn't a demand that we plunge into an endless cycle of navel-gazing just a reminder to regularly ask ourselves before God if we're living for Him, because He's the only one that really matters. See, we need to live before an audience of one. That's the way for Ben, for all of us to be the real deal. We're not trying to please God, please people, but please God who tests our hearts. A few months ago, I bought a new set of bathroom scales. Now, I've got to say, I bought them partly because I want to try to keep an eye on my weight, and partly because they're wireless and linked to my phone, which I think is just really cool. Now, I've got to say, there are two mistakes I can make with my bathroom scales. Okay? One is to become preoccupied with them so that every time I set foot in the bathroom, I step on the scales and start to agonize over the daily fluctuations of my weight. I have discovered, like, our weight actually changes all the time. This, I suppose I should have known it before now, but it did come as a bit of a surprise. But sadly, I did start to become slightly obsessed with this. You know, and it even charts the graph on my phone. You know, when I got to the point there were about 11 points during the day, I thought, I'm really doing this too much, okay? Now, the other mistake would be to forget that I've got the scales and remain completely oblivious to any weight gain, change in my BMI, heart rate, or muscle density. I did tell you the scales were cool. And by the way, they give the weather forecast as well, you know? But you see, when it comes to being the real deal, we should neither obsess about it nor ignore it. We search our hearts and get on with it. We search our motives, our habits, our affections regularly, but not obsessively. And then we throw ourselves into living to please God, the one who tests our hearts. Now, I don't want to labor, well, actually, I do want to labor this because this is the main thing I want you to get. 
pleasing God is actually what matters. You know, Paul talks about this in every single one of his letters. He just keeps saying the mark of authenticity, of being the real thing, is to please our God and King. He says this in Galatians 1, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. This really matters. And the great news is, of course, that if we've embraced the message of the gospel, that we now belong to a Father who has lavished His love on us in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that in Him, people like us might be reconciled to God, brought into His family, empowered, equipped, changed to please Him. The great news is that if you belong to the Lord Jesus, you can actually do this. We can live to please God. I think that's an astonishing thought, that people like us can actually bring pleasure to the God of the universe. How do we do it? It's not complicated. Just be the real deal. The evidence that Paul and his friends were living to please God comes in verse 5. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put a mask to cover on great God as our witness. We weren't looking for praise from people, not from you nor anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you, kind of guileless. As I've said, the first century was full of hucksters trying to make a fast buck on the speaking tour. And one of the most effective ways of doing that was to butter people up, to flatter them. But Paul didn't go there, nor should we, nor should you, Ben. This is a real temptation for many of us, because most of us are at heart people pleasers. And even for those of us who generally don't care too much about what other people think or say, there are usually some individuals whose opinion for some reason matters more to us than we can explain which makes it really easy for us to be sucked into speaking in a way that they'll be comfortable with, making decisions that they will like. Paul's talking about every subtle, even unconscious attempt to play to the crowd, to make people like us, to try to impress, to win respect by pandering to people. So let's not do it. Don't do it, Ben. Keep teaching the Bible, for that's the only way to keep us honest. But Paul says there are also other threats for all of us that will prevent us being real. Writing in the 16th century, John Calvin said, human cunning has so many labyrinthine recesses that greed and ambition are, all, are often concealed in it. I wish I could argue with him, but I, but I can't. Greed for all of us is always one moment away from flaring up in our hearts. Uh, many years ago, in 2002, the first time I was invited to come to Australia, I was flown business class. I never traveled business class. Never thought I would. Apart from the occasional envious glance at the huge seats as I made my way to the back of cattle class as usual, I'd never even given it much thought. Then I flew from London to Sydney on the upper deck of a jumbo in luxury that I did not know existed on a plane. 
it instantly made my life much more complicated. That became clear on the way home, and as a veteran of one business class flight in my life, I find myself silently bemoaning the fact that I was sitting in the downstairs section of business class in the jumbo, which in my humble opinion was marginally less airy and luxurious than upstairs. One flight was all it took. And since then, every time I've got on a plane and had to turn right instead of left, especially on a long-haul flight, I've, I've had to fight an overwhelming sense that I want a seat which goes flat. Don't underestimate the danger of greed, because it very quickly strangles our desire to please God and live for Him alone and encourages us to please ourselves. And then, beware the desire for glory. Now, that's an issue for every human being, I think, but it's a particular challenge for those who teach, who stand up here in front of people week after week, people like Ross and Ben, many others. We are all glory thieves at heart. From the very beginning, our first parents, Adam and Eve, wanted God's position and role. And our desire for glory goes even deeper than that. Because we want to bask in the approval and adoration and even worship that belong to God Himself, we love glory. Instinctively, the audience we want to play to is ourselves and other people, not God. And if we don't kill that off, our desire for glory will infect everything we do and needs to be acknowledged and exposed and brought into the light and killed off. An old Puritan prayer says this, it is my deceit to preach and to pray and to stir up other spiritual affections in order to gain commendation, whereas my rule should be daily to consider myself more vile than any man in my own eyes. Let me learn of Paul. Let me lean on thee as he did and find my ministry yours. See, if you want to be a servant of Christ for the rest of your life, this will be your world. <laughs> a world of soul-searching and repentance, a world of exhilaration and humiliation, a world of striving to speak for God's glory and struggling to cope with pride when you're affirmed and self-doubt when no one says anything and self-pity and despair when you're criticized. Which is why Paul takes up all this airtime to say, live before an audience of one. Live with a childlike focus, he says at the start of verse 7, to please God. That's the first mark of being a real deal. Avoiding people pleasing, avoiding greed, avoiding glory stealing. And as God gives us grace, live to please Him. Now that takes us eventually to the second feature of authenticity, because in verses 7 to 12 of our chapter, Paul says, we really need to live to love like God Himself. Now, if you need convincing that none of us has the resources to live for the Lord Jesus on our own, then this should do the trick. We're called to love like God Himself. As you've heard, I work in a theological college training people like Ben. There's a lot we can teach our students, but there are some things we just can't. This is one of them. We can't teach people to do what Paul talks about 
from verse 7 onward. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Your witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believe. I don't know about you, I tend to think of the Apostle Paul as a bit of a man's man, pretty robust and disciplined and straight-talking, which means it does come as a bit of a shock when he compares himself to a breastfeeding mother. But he does, because he wants us to get the fact that we are supposed to love like God Himself. That's really hard. To love people like this, to be able to share ourselves with them, we need to know them. We need to know them well. We need to go beyond our comfort zone. We need to go beyond our natural friends, beyond people like us. We need to listen well, to ask good questions, to care enough to remember the answers and act on them. We need to open ourselves up to other people, exposing our flaws to them, putting our resources at their disposal over and over and over again. It's really demanding but this is love. This is the hard road to which we're called. And I hope, Ben, you've got this by now, and that you never forget it. We're called to love like God Himself. Now, it's really easy to forget about this for all of us, but even for those of us who are in leadership in the church, I'll be honest, it's much easier to aim to become a better Bible teacher. It's much more straightforward to improve your leadership skills. Learning to strategize is a breeze compared to this. Loving like God Himself, that takes a miracle, a lifelong miracle, but this is what God calls us to, and this is what God equips us for. God enables all of us to live like this in Christ. I mean, let's remember that leaders in the church are, are basically just called to do the same thing as everyone else, but to do it at the front. And this is the love that Paul sketches out in these verses. He says, I was like a nursing mother, a hard-working laborer. I worked through the day, the evening, so that he wouldn't put people out so that they were able to hear and grasp the gospel. He piles up words for effect. You know how holy, righteous, blameless we were among you. We came and threw ourselves into loving and serving you. We put ourselves out for you at every stage. If we want to win people over for Christ, we need to love them, putting ourselves out for them. Then you're about to be ordained, set apart as a pastor, an, an under-shepherd, a servant leader like Jesus. What should that look like for Ben, for me, for all of us? Whatever role we have as those who are called to care for others in the church of the Lord Jesus, well, it looks like loving people like God Himself. That may mean scrambling to be the first person to have your name on the roster for the party on Wednesday night when you get to clean the building because you put yourself out for other people. It may mean, mean getting up early or staying up late to pray for people because you know that praying 
for the work of the gospel in other people's lives really matters. It may be, being the, may be being the first to show up at the building, the last to leave. It may be putting out chairs, packing up chairs, cleaning the kitchens, moving tables, because you love people and want to serve them. It will mean celebrating things that matter to people and weeping with them when their lives fall apart. See, to love like God means signing up for sleepless nights as you watch people you love make dumb decisions and let you down. You're signing up for personal rejection because, well, Christ loved people, and look how that went for Him. Sometimes we'll love people, and it will make them feel bad or guilty, and they'll take it out on us and exclude us. You see, to love like this because Christ loved us is to sign up for a life that will consume our every waking moment. Why on earth would we do this? It's because this is the only thing that really matters, because God is God. Look at verse 11. Paul says, we know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. Someone once said, no one will ever be a good pastor until they learn to be a father to the church entrusted to them. Not the chief executive, not the stellar preacher who steps up onto the stage before slipping away again. A father who commands and comforts and embraces and encourages, who insists and implores, who frets and guards, who repents and weeps, who is gentle and strong, who constantly reminds people that the main game is seeing the kingdom of God grow and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ increase. We're called to love like God Himself. Who on earth is worthy of that task? Not me. Probably not you either. But God has already given us the one who is the good shepherd, the leader, and it's in His footsteps that we follow. We serve in His strength and His wisdom and certainly in His love. That's what we're all called to. This is how to be the real deal. Live before an audience of one. Love like God Himself. And one more and we're done. Recognize what God is doing. If you want to stay sane in gospel ministry, if you want to keep going in the life of the church, if you want to cope with the disappointments, frustrations, delights, and successes of living with and for the Lord Jesus, then we really do need to recognize that He is the one who does the real work. God is the one who speaks and brings the church to birth and people like us to new life out of nothing. He's the one who builds the kingdom that can't be shaken. He's the one who brings all things in the universe together under one head, even the Lord Jesus Christ. He does all the heavy lifting. It's a really good idea for us to recognize that. As a friend of mine lovingly puts it to me occasionally, it's not about you, stupid. In verses 13 to 15, Paul thanks God for the way in which he worked in the Thessalonians as they embraced the message of the gospel, as he continues to change them. He thanks God for the way in which God has enabled them to imitate other followers of Jesus and Jesus himself by suffering. Verse 13, we thank God continually 
because you, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, accepted it not as a human word, but as the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered the same stuff the Jews suffered who killed the Lord Jesus and also drove us out. What is God doing in Thessalonica? What's He doing here in Southside? He is changing people, bringing them to new life in Christ and remaking them in the image of Christ. That's what He does when He works through His Word. It's what happened. It's what's happening here, week by week by week as God humbles and energizes and corrects and reshapes us, His people, as He straightens out our thinking, recalibrates our affections, and as He brings people to new life in Christ. That's what He does. Now, sometimes it will be harder to see that than others. Sometimes God works more dramatically than others. But the beautifully dependable truth is that God always works in basically the same way. We need to recognize that. And we need to remember that it's God who does all this, not us. Right now, do you recognize, if you're part of the church, what God's doing in the ministries that you're involved in? If not, then look harder. Perhaps we need to ask God to make us people who who actually spot what He's doing in the lives of others instantly so that we can thank God and pray on for it. Perhaps we need to ask God to help us to see that kindness and stickability and courage and love for the gospel and commitment aren't the result of our working cleverness or even our encouragement in other people, but the power of the Spirit. But Paul's also very aware that God is at work through the gospel in another way. It's the flip side of what we've just seen. Even as God changes people to make us look more like the Lord Jesus, He's also working too to harden people, to bring judgment. I don't, don't know if you noticed the way in which the passage ended. It's not a very upbeat ending. In this way, these people heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God, the anger of God has come on them at last. The idea is actually an Old Testament one that all through history, God's opponents have been piling up their sins, provoking God, taking His patience for granted until the point where eventually God says enough is enough and has poured out His wrath on them. You know well, Ben, like the Apostle Paul knew, the gospel ministry is a serious business. It's about life and death, heaven and hell, salvation and judgment. When God speaks His Word, either we respond and find life, or we refuse to listen and find death. And for Paul, this reality is never far away. He knows that as a race, we deserve the wrath of God and will face it unless someone intervenes, unless we're joined to Christ, our Rescuer and our King. For it is Jesus Christ who is the center of history. It's Jesus who's the King of salvation. It's Jesus who's our Lord and God. And this matters more than anything. It's why as we spend time with Paul, as he follows Jesus, it's both exhilarating and exposing. 
but it's actually while living before the audience of one is the only sensible thing to do. It's while loving like God Himself is the only appropriate response to the love lavished on us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why recognizing what God is doing in our world through salvation and judgment is the only way to make sense of the world and the sobering reality which drives us to to devote everything we have and are to honoring and enjoying and obeying the one and only God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's why what we're doing this morning isn't an almighty waste of time. It's why what we're about to do in setting Ben Mansfield apart to preach Christ until his dying breath is not a a terrible waste of someone with all kinds of promise. It's why, Ben, there is nothing more urgent or important or precious you could be doing with your life than preaching Christ. May God bless you and use you and all of us. May God make us the real deal in Christ that as we speak the gospel, God might use it to bring men and women and children to know Christ and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray together. Lord, in your kindness, work in us that we might see Christ more clearly and that having tasted the love that you've shown us in Christ, Work in us by your Spirit to make us the real deal that we might live for Christ and love Christ and hold Him out to a world which so desperately needs Him. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.